Hello, Henry Hargraves. How are you? Very good. Thanks for coming by. Oh, thank you for having me into your wonderful uh, apartment. Where exactly are we? So we're in uh, Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York here, just off the uh, the Morgan Ave stop on the L, pretty close to a restaurant a lot of people may know called Roberta's. Mm, legendary pizza. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been uh, living in America for? So I've, I got here the week of the September 11 attacks, wow. um, but I was in and out for a few years and then moved back permanently in 2004. So, I mean, yeah, so 11 years now. Okay. What, what was it like when you came in 2001? It, I mean, I, I got here a week before the attacks. Back in those days, it was, I was living another life and I was a model and it was fashion week. So I came out, did all the castings for the runway shows and Fashion Week started on September 10th. We had Mark Jacobs' show. And I also, uh, there was quite an aggressive after party where uh, I basically had the biggest hangover of my life uh, up until that point and woke up and turned on the TV and saw what was happening. And uh, yeah, wow. it was like two, two, two things to suddenly deal with that I, <laughs> I, I didn't want to have to even deal with one. Yeah, right. And, and, and around that time, I, I imagine it sort of, um, put a lot of worry into uh, Americans' minds about people coming in and out of the country. But for you, being a New Zealander, how did you find dealing with Americans around that time? It, I don't think anyone quite knew how to react. I, as soon as it happened, the, one of the first things I did was I called mum yeah. uh, to make sure, and I, and I still remember she hadn't actually seen the TV okay. uh, at the time, and so she was like, what's happened? I was like, just switch it on, mum, I'm sure it'll be on there. Yeah. Um, and which I'm glad that I did, because shortly after that, it became very hard to call in and out, because okay. um, you know, things infrastructure started falling apart a little bit. Um, and uh, then they shut the airport down for 10 days, so no one could come in and out. And I was also flat broke and I was supposed to go back to London in a few days and I was thinking I was going to be making all this money from these fashion shows which weren't happening anymore. Um, and uh, I remember wondering why on earth is Fashion Week stopping because there's been a terrorist attack. Uh, what's, what's that got to do with it? And, what, and you know, just like all those selfish things. But I had a friend of mine from Christ College his parents were living in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. So I ended up going down to uh, Georgetown and staying with them until, until I could, you know, the airports reopened and was able to leave. Right. So that's a pretty, um, a pretty wild first experience of, of really coming into uh, to New York City. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was surreal. Yeah. And, and, so, and then you were between, what, here in London for a little bit before you actually settled here in New York? Yeah, I had a uh, British passport. So it was that classic Kiwi OE straight to London via Bangkok, where spend all your Pacific pesos, where they, where they, where they still hold a bit of uh, a bit of weight. And uh, once I ran out of that, get get into London, get a job at a pub, and uh, and then try and figure out the next moves. And fortunately, when I was in Bangkok, I'd been asked to do a couple of modelling jobs. And when I got to London, I decided to bite my pride and actually take those pictures into an agency, uh, which was not something that I did very easily uh and anyway one thing led to the next and i had a contract and yeah before you knew it that started happening yeah that's that's pretty cool did you imagine yourself doing that when you initially left new zealand uh i mean in the late 90s in new zealand it was um you know there was high fashion wasn't really available um in the way that it is now and the male ideal was kind of you you know I don't even know if it was Dan Carter in those days, whoever it was, but it was kind of all blacks and, yeah. you know, black caps. It was square jaws and big chests and, you know, and I was a skinny kid with the long hair and sort of slightly androgynous looks. 
And uh, I didn't realize that was a thing in Europe uh, and, and, you know, a lot of the other world at the time. So it did come as a surprise when suddenly it was like, you are the type of person they want to put in these clothes. Yeah, right. And um, I imagine that sort of then set you in the direction that you've gone now and obviously led you into doing photography from being around that quite regularly. Yeah, I kind of hit that hit that you know little bump in New Zealand as a creative like wanting to do something creative but not really sure how you can actually make a career out of it Mm. you know whereas for me a photographer was someone who took you know the pictures of kids at school you know that was a photographer making a living (laughs) and uh and you know and there was a lot of that stuff which I just couldn't quite figure out that you know it, how things worked out. So I, did, I didn't really know there was a world of possibilities outside of New Zealand because I'd only ever seen what was there. I'd never really travelled. I'd been to Australia, but you know it's not a world of difference. And uh, and then when I fell into the fashion world, yeah, I just was like, I want to be the guy behind the camera taking the pictures. I want to be him. Yeah, cool. Um, take me back to your New Zealand days. You've you've chosen um, "She's a Mod" by Ray Columbus mm-hmm. as a song. Um, what is this song to you? And where, was this a song growing up, or was this? Where does this fit into your life? Uh, I feel a lot of these. I mean, to a lot. I mean, a lot of my music as a kid was the kind of playlist that Mum would play in the car, and you know, and it was always that you know those double, you know, those double compilation tapes, you know, Kiwi Gold and uh, <laughs> and things like that. And to me, Ray Columbus, he was kind of like I don't know. I just as a young kid thought he was the New Zealand's answer to the Beatles. Um, and I just kind of, I always liked hearing this song. She's a mom.
life like for you growing up in New Zealand? Where did you grow up in Christchurch? Is that right? Yeah, so I grew up in Christchurch. Uh, actually, it's kind of come full circle. We grew up, grew up on Clyde Road, just over the road from Fendleton School. And, uh, and then we moved for a few years, and now my parents have moved back to Clyde Road, directly opposite the home that, uh, that I grew up in. <laughs> really? So when I go back, it's, uh, yeah, still there. That's awesome. And what, what, did you have brothers and sisters growing up? Or? Yeah, I've got a younger brother, yeah. Ricky. Was it, hello, Ricky. Was it quite a creative household? Uh, yeah, it was. Dad... Dad was, you know, he'd been art director at the press and uh, he'd worked kind of as a graphic designer in the early days when it was still, you know, about, you know, scalpels and, you know, cutting and pasting and doing things like that. Uh, and um, and he's, he has a printing company now, a commercial printing company. And mum, uh, she, although was trained as a dental nurse, she is very interested in textile art and uh, was doing a lot of that. And she also is a producer of the visual arts side of, you know, a lot of the festivals in Christchurch. So, awesome. so that was a thing for me growing up was always helping out on the festivals, whether it's a jazz festival or the arts festival or festival of romance. You know, I often had a role in those things, not necessarily in a creative aspect, but I might be... Um, uh, running around the flyers to all the dairies yeah, uh, in, yeah. in, in the back of the Honda Civic, you know. <laughs> yeah, or packing up the chairs or something like that. Exactly, or on the later days when uh, I was old enough, I was always bartending at them. Uh, lovely. Um, that's funny that you say that because you said you, you went on to do a lot of hospitality work when you later moved on to, uh, to overseas into London and whatnot. What drew you to that? Just a job or you really enjoyed it? Yeah, I think it was both. A, I really like doing things that are about talking and connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And I like hosting yeah. as well. And uh, yeah, and it was uh, just a job that I could get and seem to be good at and something you could travel with. And so when I left New Zealand, it was like, I've got these skills. And yeah, and so when I got to London, that's what I did. When I got to New York, that was what I did. You know, just always those things to keep my head above the waterline. Yeah, yeah. And it's, as you said, it's a great way to meet people as well and be around people. Um, I imagine you met uh, a lot of your network based off doing those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially in New York, it is, you know, the bartender's the keeper of alcohol. He's the, you know, he's the most powerful man in the bar. Yeah. Everyone wants to be on the right side of him. And, uh, and that was really really cool and you know it's the only time I really ever felt like the king of New York it suddenly you know <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd turn up at you know some of the hardest doors and no one really cares about the uh, the dude with all the money over there because there's the bartender at Schiller's you yeah. know let's get let's get him in because we know we're going to be down there trying to get a drink off him at some point yeah <laughs> that's that's very cool um being you know straight into it and having that uh, uh respect of the of the high rollers I suppose um tell me a little bit about your now involvement in um, Jack's Wife Frida and, and St. Maisie, um, two restaurants that you're a partner in. How, how did this all come about? Um, it, so it was really hard for me to get out of the restaurant world because I really did enjoy it. And I essentially knew that if I was, I wanted to be involved in restaurants, but I didn't want to have, I knew I couldn't have any responsibility if I was going to give photography a proper go. Yeah. And essentially people I worked with were going to open their own places and I really believed in them and trusted them. And, you know, they're always looking for money. So I was like, let's come in as a financial partner. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm just basically a shareholder in them. And I found that 
I got no satisfaction out of doing all the sensible investments like property, which backfired, shares, which also was like, I get no fun out of this and everything's in other people's hands. Whereas I felt with restaurants, it's like, I actually have a sense of what works, what doesn't work. And it's a place I can go and it also, you know, it's a nice synergy in my story as a kind of food photographer and restaurant owner. Yeah. Um, I actually dined at uh, Jack's wife, Frida, over the weekend okay. um, and it was rammed. We waited for an hour and it was, it was great. What is it that you love you know, so much about that, that particular um, space? Well, the guy who... Who, uh, who's the operator and main owner is the guy called Dean and he was the maitre d' at Schiller's so I was bartender and he was maitre d'ing he's a South African boy and I just love his whole philosophy about everything was you want to create an atmosphere where anything can happen you know people expect the food to be to be above par or on par but you know no one wants to go somewhere where they know exactly you know the uh, the script and, and I think he just creates that fun, slightly unpredictable atmosphere. And he knows everyone's name. He makes everyone feel great who comes in there. And I think that's the, the recipe for its success. Yeah. And I imagine you're a regular? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, look, there's another, it's the other reason I get involved in these. I know they're <laughs> going to get my money one way or the other. So <laughs> I might, might as well be trying to get a little bit back with it. You know, yeah, right I'll get five cents on the dollar back, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, tell me about where Split Ends fit in for you. Uh, you know, I, a lot of those class, you know, those sort of crowded houses and Split Ends, I was actually never that passionate about, Mm -hmm. but this is the the, one of the songs that I've just really got a soft spot for. Um, and to me, this is one of those kind of classic New Zealand songs that I feel didn't matter who did it, it would have been a classic anywhere in the world.
Henry, tell me a little bit about your day-to-day routine here in, uh, in Brooklyn. So it was a really conscious decision of mine to live close enough to my studio that it, you know, I, I don't make an excuse not to go. Yeah. Um, so I live about 10 minutes away. So yeah, typically I get up in the morning and might have, have a light bite here and then pick a coffee up on the way. To-go coffee is a big thing here and I love my drip coffee. I know most people in New Zealand kind of roll their eyeballs at the horrible American coffee, but uh, you get a taste for, uh, for the, the, the cheap deli drip coffee. <laughs> and it is something satisfying about paying $1 I, uh, for it and it lasts me the whole trip down to the studio. Um, yeah, and I'll get down there and usually plug away on a couple of things and then if I've got a shoot on, then people will start arriving and, mm-hmm. you know, set it and just get into it and yeah. then uh and then i i do a lot of my one of my priorities is going out and exploring places so more often than not i eat out most nights okay. and also living alone uh it's actually quite exp- you know it's cheap to go out and or compared to you know it is back home and so it's often not that much of an extravagance to be going out eating four or five times a week and uh yeah and so i'll do that and yeah just again those those social things are one of my priorities and why i moved here yeah right um tell me a little bit how you balance your personal work and i suppose your commercial work it yeah i mean that's a constant uh battle i've had the last six months i've fortunately been in a position where i've been able to say no to a lot of commercial stuff um but i try to you know, it's essentially I'll try to spend about, let's say I work a five-day week, which I don't because I've got that immigrant work ethic where I'll, I'll, go, I'll go in all seven days uh, if, if, if I don't get distracted. Yeah. Uh, but let, let's say I do 60% of my time on personal projects and okay. 40 on commercial projects. Yeah, cool. And, and it, say, for example, the, the No Seconds project that you did a while ago, how long did it take to put that together? Uh, it's actually pretty quick. I don't have masses amounts of patience for long projects i actually did film at university and at the end of that there was one thing i knew for certain was that i didn't want to be making films <laughs> so i found the whole process just too tedious yeah. and too many compromises and uh and that's why i think photography has been a great fit where you can finish up at the end of the day and have something to show for it you know it may not be the entire project but you're like okay i've got a third of this done. Two more days in here. I've got this. Got this taken care of. So, um, and I also feel with photography, so many people second guess everything, and I just always think that no one knows your thought process. So whatever they see, they think is deliberate anyway. Yeah, totally. Uh, have you ever had the, um, I suppose, the experience when someone really questions your work, and you kind of go, ah, oh, well, ooh, maybe you know. Well, I think, to me, good art holds a bit of a mirror up to the viewer. Okay. So it means something different to everyone. And, I mean, with the with the No Second series, I mean, the amount that people have read into that, uh, which is totally not what I intended with a lot of it, uh, to me that is, I get so much satisfaction out of that. When they, when they interpret things in their own way, and I'm like, perfect, I've done just what I need to do, which is to show enough for, to get someone thinking. Yeah. I mean, how did you come up with that idea to, to photograph um, uh, prisoners on, on death row's last meals? It was, was Texas was um, stopping the last meal 
the choice of the last meal for prisoners on death row. Yeah. And when I read about that, I was just curious as to what they were actually requesting. So I went online, and it's all public record. And I read the list, and to me, it was for the first time I was able to connect with the whole human aspect of the death penalty in the States. And to me, it is just the most surreal thing, this kind of state-sponsored executions. And I feel they've done, they do a, a job here where they kind of like make it a statistic yeah. as opposed to in distance the whole human aspect. And this brought that back home to me and I just thought this would be a really interesting thing to try and represent visually. Yeah. So I was like, let's do it. And I suppose humanize it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's play some music. Um, Fly My Pretties. You a big fan? Uh, I am. So mum likes to keep me in touch with what's going on back sure. home. As, uh, as mum do. In the, in the New Zealand music world. Um, so this was one CD. She still loves to send me CDs, even though I have to uh, pull out my external hard drive, <laughs> convert it into an MP3, and then put it on my thing. Or just get the CD and still listen to it on Spotify. Yeah. I, and it never actually gets played. Uh, she sent me this a few years ago. And um, this, I was just really impressed with it. I, I was just like, I really, really dig this. And it's, you know, for me, being away for as long as I have, it, when I go back home, it's quite hard to connect with a lot, of, a lot of new New Zealand music that's happening. And people often try to talk to me about bands, and I just don't know. Anyway, this was someone who I got who I just really dug. So here it is. Out in the west, we know what's best. Shoot first, fuck the rest. And back in the east, selling it cheap. Oh, God, speed. Your greed, I'll be on the Drinking in the Do you still feel connected to New Zealand? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, they, they have that they have that whole thing where they're like ten years in New York and you're a New Yorker, yeah. and I'm always, I'm I'm like I don't I don't think I'll ever be a New Yorker while I'm a Kiwi. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you have quite a uh, a lot of Kiwi friends here? I do. The first few years that I was here, I think you kind of make a conscious decision to try and, you know, make a different group from away away from home. Uh, it's kind of a, a bit of a reaction to what I saw in London, where people kind of get in their little ghettos. And uh, so I, I did. And then and now there's actually a really strong New Zealand network, which can be very helpful in like a lot of networking and business ways. Um, and also just just great people and there's all those things like the Cricket World Cups going on at the moment and it's just so much fun to get together with an, another bunch of Kiwis and, and watch that. I, I, I really dig it. Yeah. And I, and I also, the Kiwis who are over here, it's quite a hustle to get to America um, and the, we're, still, we're still very much a rarity here and, uh, and everyone I find here, I, I genuinely enjoy their company yeah. on the whole. Cool. And, and I suppose... On the other side, you have, uh, do you have a quite a close American friend group now as well that you just sort of hang out with? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Caitlin Levine, who I, is my collaborator on pretty much, you know, most of my projects and things. Yeah, good California girl there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and then, and then there's also a big group from all over. I've got f- friends from, you know, everywhere. Yeah. I suppose the longer you hear, the more friends you collect, really, don't you? And and it really is a diverse place. I, I think New York is a world city, not necessarily an American city, for that reason that mm. it attracts people from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. What was it about New York that drew you here, rather than you know any other city in America? I I mean, it was it was the first city that I came to, and it was the first uh, first American city I came to, and I was just initially drawn to the positivity. Okay. Um, and the way that everyone sort of would embrace everything. And I'm not hating on London or anything, but I did find that when I came here, suddenly it wasn't you just another Kiwi. You, everyone was kind of curious and interested. And I like that. I also like the fact the subway ran 24 hours. I liked that you were never more than a $20 taxi ride away from home. Uh, that although it's a massive city, Everything seemed to happen within a smallish area, so everything was able able to get to. Um, things seemed much cheaper, and uh, yeah, and again, people asked questions, and uh, that's I just really responded to all those things. Yeah, I can imagine it was everything that you must have wanted when you came here. Yeah, absolutely, and I just I like an evening where anything can happen. It's not like oh, it's a Tuesday. There's not much going on. And here, it was just like, it's a Tuesday, there's so many things that I could be up to right now. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's got an, an offer and doing something. Yeah. Uh, now, you've chosen the uh, All Blacks Hucker as uh, one of your tracks. Uh, interesting choice. Tell me, what, what was, what's the reasoning behind this? It, uh, I mean, look, I mean, nothing, nothing gets me wound up like a good hacker. I was actually... Um, uh, recently coming back from the Bahamas with my, my best friend Nico Evers Swindell, um, who some of you might, might uh, know is he's a, really cutting it as an actor now in LA and doing, doing a great job. And we were in the Bahamas for New Year's and we were coming back and our plane was delayed in um, the airport there in Nassau and they had free Wi-Fi and the two of us got on the computer and did the, uh, the top 10 harkers we were watching to, you know, on, on the way to the plane. I mean, we, we couldn't, you know... The 
we, we almost didn't want the plane to leave. It was like we were in heaven just like watching these things, the countdown. I suppose the biggest struggles for you moving abroad I mean the inevitable is the distance from from family uh, and you know and you've got to build you got to fend for yourself and build that network again which I mean is also it's pretty satisfying when you do do that and yeah. you know it does does put a lot on your shoulders but you know there's that whole there's, there is a bit of a fear of the unknown um, but, I mean, I've never really seen that as too much of a hurdle. It's kind of something that I feel kind of defines who you are as well. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what about um, initially setting up here, like finding a house, getting everything sorted? And I mean, you, you mentioned to me that you, uh, you're about to go and renew your visa and you're finding that, uh, you know, sort of a, a hurdle at the moment as well. Yeah, uh, the visa thing is an absolute pain. Uh, it's actually interesting. There's a, another good friend of mine, um, Guy Horrocks, and he's actually been talking with a lot of people from everyone from Mayor Bloomberg. I think he's gone to the White House as well. Where there's a big shift where he's got a really, really successful tech company, and you know he's almost finding it impossible for him to be out here working. And they just there's a real kind of I think there's a this is one of the short-sighted things America as a general. I think they see a foreigner coming here means an American losing a job. And I think that is totally a really, really bad way to see it. And I, th I think there is that, that's, you know, kind of a very conservative and old-fashioned way of approaching it. Um, and that is still prevalent in the visa system and immigration system here. So that's a pain. There's also all the banking stuff, like trying to get an apartment. You've got no credit history. Um, you've got no one who will guarantee anything. Yeah. I mean, just those things. But, you know, in saying that, I mean, I've heard, you, I mean, you talk to people trying to immigrate to New Zealand and, uh, you know, there's equally as many things happening. Yeah, but far less people. Mm. Well, also with, um, with my visa at the moment, nothing online matters. So okay. now pretty much everything is, you know, um, a result of how well you do on the internet. Yeah. But the immigration department is like, oh, so what if you did a, a, you know, this big talk that's on, you know, all these websites and got millions of hits or anything? It's like, unless it's printed matter with your name on it, it doesn't count. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that bizarre that they're living so far behind? Well, yeah, I also uh, yeah, had, a, had a run-in with the IRS recently, and the IRS don't accept emails. You, <laughs> yeah, you have to fax or post. 
Oh, man. Correspondence, yeah. For, for being so far ahead in so many areas of technology um, and science, they're so far behind in so many very simple things, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, internet here is super slow. I mean, not that it's much better in New Zealand, but yeah. compared to, like, you know, a lot of continental Europe and stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your successes here and the things that you've really enjoyed doing um, since you've lived here. I mean, I, I guess, like, you know, because I've had a a few steps you know going from modeling to then the bartending days and now into the photography and and they're sort of and then moving from photography into the artist space and I mean it's been really I mean I've, I find it really satisfying being able to have a goal and reaching that goal you know and the first one being to to be able to stand on my own by not modeling and then making it having a great run as a bartender but then being like okay I want to prove myself as a photographer and being self-sustaining on that and then um and then now in this world as an artist I mean that's been it's been a real trip and you know and look and it's still you know still going there's still so many things that I want to achieve and I've got you know so it's exciting and I, I, I think as soon as you start you feel like you're at the plateau. I think that's when you go stale. And anyway, I'm I'm far from that. I'm still 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 got the my eyes set way up in the distance. Uh, well, what are, what are the big goals of uh, of Mr. Henry? It's so I'm now starting to get to a point where I can have an idea, and whether it's good or bad, I've got the confidence and the resources to give it a go. And I mean, I think that's a big thing. I think it's way better to embrace a bad idea and give it a go than just not do anything and because you never know actually if it's going to be any good or bad until you've done it and you know everyone's got a ton of ideas but very few people have the ability to be able to um, execute it and I think that's something that I've been very lucky that I that were lucky to have I didn't always have that it took me a lot and to build up the confidence to be able to do that but uh, I'm I just had a meeting with um someone from Miami who does all the public art there and they're wanting, uh, wanting me and Caitlin to do a big installation over the um, Art Basel in December. And, uh, and then there's lots of big other things happening. I'm in discussions at the moment with the most prestigious art gallery in Italy that's going to host an exhibition. Um, you know, I've got these exhibitions happening in New Zealand in April. And, uh, and yeah, there's lots of stuff happening in that space. And I also feel that you the fine art world is shut off so easily by the power block and it hasn't really been until the internet has come along and it's leveled the playing field and I never felt confident saying I was a fine artist until suddenly you have this affirmation where you know suddenly millions of people start sharing your work on the internet and looking at it and showing it and it trends really well and everyone's responding so positively to it and to me, that was such an exciting thing when that started to happen. Yeah. And suddenly I was like, hey, you know, this does stand up with, you know, all the, the best of all these other things yeah. out there. That must be quite humbling to have the internet support, I suppose. Or, you know, not the internet support, but the support of thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, you know, and something that now I've got, I actually take a lot of satisfaction out of other I actually go through and gauge everything by the amount of negative responses you get because, you know, it's like no one, if no one hates something, no one really likes it. And, you know, for every hater, there's 10 lovers out there. And, 
And if someone's taking the time to write hate mail, you know it's affected them. Uh, and they're not forgetting it. Yeah. I mean, because I think that's the one thing you don't want. Or my fear would be just run-of-the-mill, pretty but not memorable. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and you said earlier that, you know, your work is reflects the the person who's looking at it, I suppose. So it's really a reflection of who they are as a person. Yeah, wow. ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about where uh, she had sit in, in, the, in the perspective of life as a New Zealander, where does she had sit in for you? I mean, we're coming back to the 90s. I was at university and I was into that kind of Fagazi ministry. You know, I think Pantera was even thrown in there. And it was like, finally, New Zealand's got a hard rock act that I really like. I mean, they may have only done it really for one album, (laughs) but uh, or maybe the one before this, before they mellowed out a bit. But at the time, this here, I was just losing my stuff to it. So here we are. America, what would you want to go there for? Who's going to mow your bloody lawn?
much opportunity or obviously you've had quite a lot of opportunity to explore America. Have you got some favorite parts outside of New York? Yeah, so I've done two road trips uh, to um, uh, Los Angeles, both with Nico. We did the south once, the north, and we also did the, uh, the west coast. Um, and uh, yeah, she is as his best man at the wedding. I was crunching the numbers, and I was like, the two of us have been through 38 states, um, which is wow. a hell of a lot more than most Americans can say. Um, and when we do the trips, we can. There's, there was a book the first time called Road Food of America that we had, which had all the Mar and Pa restaurants. Because I think you have the cities that you want to visit, but in between, you don't really didn't. We didn't really know what we wanted to do. And it was like, okay, we're going from Nashville to New Orleans. Um, And we're like, okay, looking at this book and the map, we've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner at these three spots along the way. So the food kind of became the narrative of the trip. And the two kind of cultural things that I wanted to see, apart from just going to the cities, it was more about ticking the boxes. I wanted to go to Graceland and Mark Rothko's chapel in uh, Houston, Um, and which were both awesome. Graceland was awesome because it's just so tacky. Uh, I guess I had a really romanticized uh, vision, and you get there and you're like, whoa, that purple shag pile carpet is appalling and <laughs> you know and your beard was a white pod and yeah. you know and just these weird things um and uh and then rothko's chapel had actually seen in the robert hughes documentary american visions mm-hmm. um and i i had the i wouldn't say pleasure or displeasure i sat next to robert hughes at a dinner party a few years later and told him that after seeing that i went to rothko's chapel uh, and he asked me if I liked it, and I said, yeah, it was terrific, and he said, I thought it was a load of bullshit. Uh, and, uh, and suddenly I'm getting in a discussion with the guy who wrote our textbook at university uh, on, on this, uh, which was yeah, quite intimidating, um, although I felt he was one of those people who would just take the opposite position of you on any point anyway. Uh, so was was what it was. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing country just to go exploring and the things you see and, uh, you know, and just as you're going along, those things that you're curious about and pulling off. Mm. Um, and we tried not to do too many interstates um, as well. We tried to do a few more of the local roads, which, of course, takes more time, but, you know, it's more satisfying. Yeah, that's what it's about, really, isn't it? It's seeing the country. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, look, New Orleans, to me, is just one of those special places. That's one of my favorite places in, uh, in America. And, you know... You can't do any more than a few days there because it, uh, it's a pretty decadent, uh, decadent town. You know, while you're down there, there's really only uh, only eating, boozing, and jazz to, uh, 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 you know, that's what you, what, we, what I feel like you should be doing. Yeah. Um, maybe I justify uh, <laughs> my, that, that, that decadence. But anyway, that's, that's a place that's really special to my heart. Have you got some favorite eateries that you've found across the country, like that really stand out for you? Yeah, I mean, like in uh, in New Orleans, Galatoire's is just, I mean, it's like something else. They always say that no work gets done in New Orleans on a Friday because everyone that matters in that town's at Galatoire's. Um, and we, I went there with my friend Harry and I think we went in for lunch and left at about 6 p.m. Um, and I made friends with sort of everyone in the restaurant and they were saying the, the most recent hire for a waiter was in... 
15 years ago or something. Um, it was it was just a nuts place. And I yeah, absolutely love that. I love it when I go through LA. Nico takes me to a lot of the old school. I love that old Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of the places there that, uh, that we go to. Um, yeah, and again, in Miami. In Miami, it's more there are hotels I really like there. Um, you know, I love this, like going to the Standard, uh, and there's, you know, there's a couple of the others there. I love going to the Fontainebleau just because that's where um, Goldfinger was. Uh, that scene was out by the pool with Sean Connery, even though it's remodelled a little bit. I like I like going to those kind of places that I I grew up gazing at for years as a kid. Um, and yeah, and I mean, look, in New York's just there are so many favourite spots here. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, growing up and, and seeing America on, on film and on television, what was, your, what was your perspective and understanding of the country? Uh, I don't know if I really had a massive understanding. I was just curious to get here and see what it would be like, but I always felt like I would like it. Um, and it really, it, it, I was just always curious and it drew me and I think culturally I found it really interesting and to me, there were just all those places. I felt like when I looked at most other countries, you know, there were like two places you were curious to go. Yeah. And suddenly when someone said America, it was like, you know, everything from Grand Canyon to Yellowstone to Chicago to, you know, Savannah to, you know, every, you know Vegas. It was like everything just seemed like an interesting, uh, you know, something, there was a draw card, you know, in every state basically. And you've managed to do most of those things now. Yeah. Oh, look, believe me, there's still a to-do list. And the, dig, the, the more you dig, the more you know there is down there. So there's yeah. still plenty, plenty to do. Yeah. Well, what's on your um, to-do list for the rest of 2015? Um, so I'll, I'll be heading down to Wanaka in April for the Autumn Festival, where I've got four exhibitions opening. Uh, then I'm doing... Uh, then I've got... You know, i got to go... I've, I've got to go and meet my goddaughter in London, uh, who's just been born, Annie. Uh, then, I don't know, I, I don't really plan too far ahead. There's a few things like, you know, this thing in Miami, this thing in Italy. Uh, but the rest of it is like, you know, I want to give myself, especially while I'm single, you know, enough freedom to be able to do things at the drop of a hat. Yeah. You know, there's so many offers to go and stay at people's places out of town. And I'd love to go and explore some new uh, some new countries as well, which I think will happen sort of later in the year. So yeah, I mean, I'm just take take it as it comes. Awesome, man. Um, we're going to finish up uh, with Pokeriteriano. Um, where does what does the song mean to you? I mean, look, it's it's. I don't think any any Kiwi can uh, can listen to this late night on a bus on their headphones and not bring a tear to their eye. <laughs> and you do that? I. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, when I was told to compile a list of my favourite Kiwi songs and when nostalgia comes into it, I think this here was just the first thing that popped to mind. Okay, brilliant. Henry, thank you so much for talking to me, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, have a really great rest of your year, man. It sounds like it's going to be a good time. Don't worry, I, I intend to make it a great time.
You've been listening to A Kiwi Abroad with me, Conan Esther. To listen again to this and all other episodes, view photos and find out the playlists, head along to akiwiabroad.co.nz. Kia ora.